Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and uh, got an action-packed podcast for you. I'm joined by my two co-hosts and colleagues, Ryan Sweet. Ryan, good to see you. Good to see you, Mark. How are you? Good. You sound good. And uh, of course, Ryan is the Director of Real-Time Economics. And then we've got the Deputy Chief Economist, Chris DeRees. Hey, Chris, how are you? Doing well. Good. You're in the office, I see. Yep. Yeah, I'm good. alone here, but uh, are you all alone? Really? Yeah. No one's there. Yeah. No. I think maybe afternoon. there's one other person, but we'll yeah. see. Well, you're getting a lot of work done, I assume. Yep. Yeah. Good. It's the way it should be. <laughs> and John Lear, John, welcome. Hi, Mark. Yeah, great to be here. John is the. Are you're the chief economist? Chief right? economist of Morning Consult. Morning yes, sir. Consult. Yeah, it's fantastic. We're ex- very excited to have you. We gotten to know each other. During the pandemic, we did some work together, uh, sur- survey-based work uh, back in the t- beginning of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I was looking through that recently, actually. That holds up pretty well. Does it? What I can't yeah. remember. What did we well, say? Well, we highlighted a lot of the really dramatic income differences that the pandemic was disproportionately affecting low-income people, that um, women and women parents in particular were disproportionately affected. They were dropping out of the labor force at higher rates. Um, and then we, I think the surprising result was how robust um, entrepreneurism remained in the face yes. of rising cases right. that, you know, we saw a lot of people still wanting to start businesses. And a lot of that has borne out over the last year. And as I recall, we were surprised by that when we saw it yeah, in yeah. the survey. Like, Correct. We, we Actually, I was, I was in question, is that is something wrong with their survey? <laughs> <laughs> but no, you're right. That's right. That, that, yeah. was, that came out in the survey results. Um, but it's wonderful to have you. Great to have you. Uh, maybe you could take a minute and just give the listener a sense of morning consult because that might be new to folks. And sure, and you, you know, I'd love to hear your path to uh, how did you become chief economist of Morning Consult? How did that happen? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So I'll start with Morning Consult. Morning Consult is a global data intelligence company. So every day we're conducting thirty-five thousand interviews across. I think we're in forty-five countries now every day. And um, the surveys cover a range of topics. So I focus on our economic surveys, confidence, employment, personal finances, inflation. But then a lot of our business focuses on um, brand intelligence. So what do consumers think about different brands, different issues, and how is that likely to impact their spending uh, activities? So it's a really um, exciting company because we're sort of pairing this real-time data analysis. um, Sorry, I should say we're pairing this real-time data with sort of cutting edge analysis. So bringing on a team of uh, machine learning experts and, and econometricians and uh, artificial intelligence to try to pair the two together. Great. And you you guys, are you, you're a privately held company? I can't remember. Did you go public or something? Uh, we are a privately held company. Okay. We um, raised our series B last year oh, at a billion dollar valuation. So that was really exciting. And we continue to grow. We started the pandemic with 120 employees and we just passed 500 recently so cool. it's been this sort of crazy uh crazy growth and there's a lot of uh room to expand so if folks are interested um we still have a lot of job openings yeah i well you know what i remember john called me when the series b That's was going right. out and he's because he knew he was going to be expanding and basically he said i need to hire people and i said to him john don't hire my people That's, That's right. i remember that <laughs> i remember that john i'll help you out here but buddy but don't hire my people thank you john you've been very gracious in that regard but 
It's great. No, it's been great. Yeah, we we hired we just recently hired um, Scott Brave, who was at the Chicago Fed for a long time doing oh. now. He, he does a lot of now casting work, real time now casting. And then we brought in Lori Hellwing from Point72 to do a lot of our sort of Wall Street analysis and financial services analysis. Oh, Point72. That's the hedge fund uh, Cohen, Steve Cohen. Correct. Right? Yep. Yeah, right. Interesting. Yep. Yeah, I visited them once in uh it was, I call tell you, it was high intensity. I'm yes. <laughs> it was yes. high intensity. Uh, yeah, interesting place. Oh, that's fantastic. And so how did you find your way to, to a morning consult? Yeah, I think um, through a somewhat circuitous route, as is the case with a lot of people when they find a startup. Um, so I was, before working at morning consult, I was living in Germany. I lived in Berlin for four years and I studied economics there. I was getting my master's. It's kind of on the fence about coming back to the U.S. I previously worked for a company called Promontory, doing a lot of credit sure. risk analysis. Great in the company. 2000, yeah, it's a great company. 2009, 2010, uh, banks were failing. As you know, it is not that long ago when you know we had all those uh, troubles in the financial services sector. And I was thinking about is now a good time to come back to the U.S. And I happen to know um, the CEO of Morning Consult, and he reached out to me and said, "We've got some data. We've been running the exact same five questions as the University of Michigan." Except for instead of doing it 600 per month, we're doing 6,000 a day across, I think at that time it was 15 countries. What do you think? Is this, is there something here? Is there a there there basically? And so I said, okay, this seems like a good enough reason for me to pack my bags and come back over to the US and I'll spend a few months diving in and figuring out what the data looks like. And so I started, I think somewhat skeptically thinking, well, I don't know what, you know, this is a at the time, the company really wasn't doing a lot of economic research. So it was for me, it was sort of a, a change of pace, a change of tone. And the data that I saw just helped us predict a couple really important events, particularly in that 2000, late 2018 and 19. You know, I don't know if you remember, but the, the Fed sort of had this um, start and stop approach where they totally changed gears. And I think there was a, an instance where if they had seen maybe some of that data right before their meeting um, you know, maybe they would have seen things a little differently. And so I thought, okay, this could be really valuable. And I think that high frequency cross country macro data is gonna be more valuable over time. And I think probably some of this volatility that we see now with the pandemic, I think that that's probably more a, a feature um, than it has been historically. And so I thought, yeah, let me um, attach myself to this rising star. Cool. And how long, how, when was that? How long ago was that? I started, um, so I did this sort of initial data analysis work in the summer of 2019, and I joined full-time in um, the fall of 2019. Oh, so not that long ago. That's great. Not that long ago. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The thing I find that kind of attracted me quickly to Morning Consult was the fact that you take the University of Michigan survey that did that, does it twice a month, I believe 500 respondents, you know, better yep. than I. And you do it every single day and you have 5,000 uh, responses yeah. and they go, and then you can break down the results into all kinds of demographics. That yeah. So we dive in deep income, geography, generation, and there are certain points, party. political affiliation. There are points in time where different demographics matter more than others. And you just have to have the large sample sizes and that demographic depth to be able to do that work. Um, one of the things that's been really exciting for us is just, you know, starting to use that, use the features of the high frequency data to start doing more and more forecasting and now casting. No, it's great to have you. Well, here's the game plan, John. So I want to talk about Russia, Ukraine, because that's yes. top of mind. And I know you guys, yes. we just saw, Chris, you passed around a survey uh, that 
your survey of different attitudes towards, I think, Russia across the mm -hmm. world. And I'd like to mm -hmm. dive into that a little bit. <clears throat> and then we're going to play our statistics game. And uh, we'll, I'll describe that when we get to it. Always a lot of fun. I'm usually the winner of this game, John. You should know. <laughs> and, uh, and, and there's a special humility. cowbell for me, <laughs> Mark. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll play that game. And then uh, I do want to dive into uh, more of your survey work. You know, obviously, consumer sentiment is very dour. Yes. At least by the University of Michigan survey, it's very dour. And I assume you're showing the same results, but I want to talk about that and what it, why and what's going on and what does it mean. And there's, I know you're doing lots of other surveys and we can dive into that. I think we could talk for three days, but we'll keep it to an hour, hour and 15 minutes, something like that. So, so with that, let's talk about Russia, Ukraine and, yeah. um, you know, maybe I'll turn to Chris first. Chris, what is your sense of this? Um, you know, you know, we're doing economic forecasting. We have to make assumptions around events like this and what it means, uh, what kind of, what, what should be in our baseline scenario? By the way, we, ran, we had a podcast a couple of days ago with Gaurav Ganguly, our, uh, the guy who runs our operations in Europe mm -hmm. <clears throat> around this uh, issue. You know, I thought it was very uh, informative. But Chris, do you, you want to just give, give people a sense of you know, how we're thinking about things and how this might play out and what it might mean for the economy? We can then turn to John's survey results. Uh, sure. So I guess uh, first and foremost, the, the situation continues to evolve, right? So our, our views continue to evolve as well. But uh, at, at, from a baseline view, uh, I believe I'd sum up the, uh, the view as uh, status quo, that there will continue to be this tension, uh, certainly between Russia, Ukraine, Europe, and the rest of the world uh, around the, the status of, of Ukraine. The troop buildups and movements will continue uh, for a while. Um, but uh, we fall short of an actual full-scale invasion uh, of, of, by Russia of, of Ukraine as a whole. A good chance that they do uh, take over the uh, eastern part of the country, the, the Donbass regions, which are already under um, their influence to a large degree, but unlikely that they, they would uh, go much beyond that. That's, that, that's at least our, our baseline working assumption. So, so they, there is an invasion... Or encourage and pick your word. Conflict, but, yes. But it, it, it's limited to the eastern provinces where the Russian-speaking population is large. And uh, they do not go all the way to Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. Correct. At least in terms of military force, right? There will continue to be provocations. Russia is very likely to continue to insert itself in Ukrainian politics, um, winning the uh, information campaign, if you will. But uh, in terms of a, a military effort, our, our baseline is suggests that uh, they will not go beyond the, beyond that region. And in the baseline, what's the macro impact of that on the Russian economy, on the European economy, on our, our U.S. economy? So in terms of, so then we get into the question of the uh, European response or Western mm -hmm. response. Uh, do we expect uh, sanctions uh, if this if this does occur, the only way there would be no sanctions or uh, a retreat of sanctions at this point would be some type of peace agreement or if Russian troops back off entirely. So there will be some uh, response, but uh, under this scenario, it's likely to be uh, somewhat targeted, right? Certain individuals, certain banks, perhaps uh, certain uh, parts of the financial system, but nothing full scale uh, uh, in terms of a, 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 um, a strong response. Unless, uh, unless there was a, a full-scale incursion, so we 
we expect the Russia will continue to be the Russian banks, for example, will continue to be um, members of the SWIFT network. They will they will continue to be able to uh, uh, conduct uh, financial transactions across borders. Um, there, but certain individuals are likely to be to be, uh, be sanctioned, much as was done after the Crimean uh, conflict. The uh, price of oil, price of gas, is likely to remain quite volatile, elevated. Uh, especially if there is this, this initial incursion, as I've de- described, there's undoubtedly uh, oil and gas prices will, will rise. If it stops, though, if again, if uh, Russia doesn't go beyond um, that region, then it's likely that we will see things stabilize and, and calm over time, but unlikely that uh, oil prices would retreat uh, to levels that we had prior to the, um, prior to the last couple of months unless we have other uh, supplies coming online. So there might be supply responses from the US, Middle East that could increase and lower the price of oil. But uh, in terms of the conflict itself, the, uh, the impact on prices is like, likely to remain high. We expect that the uh, Nord Stream uh, 2 uh, project will continue uh, to, go, to move forward. Uh, very important, of course, for European That's nations. That's the pipeline from Russia yes. to Europe that is- Correct. I think it's been built, it just hasn't been actually opened yet turned on yeah turned on so um yeah. again we because of the uh, importance to uh to europe and how vulnerable europe is from an energy standpoint I think they really can't afford not to uh import uh, import that gas so that that's likely to move ahead and uh as i said there in terms of financial markets there's likely to be this risk premium the russian economy will, will continue to remain under stress but over time that uh, that uh impact should be lessened. So it sounds uh, pretty modest. Forward. I mean, obviously on Europe, it'll be more of a deal because of the higher natural gas prices. And they, one third of their natural gas comes from uh, Russia. But for Correct. the US, rest of the global economy, kind of not a big, not that big a deal in this scenario. Where they Correct. In this stop. very specific baseline <laughs> yeah. scenario, we right. could certainly paint a darker picture. Yeah. And we have. Um, yeah. My sense is that and I'm curious, Ryan, what you think of this, that uh, the conflict is already embedded in oil price mm-hmm. to some degree. That about To some degree, yes. Yeah. We're sitting at $90 a barrel, let's say, on WTI, West Texas Intermediate. If this had not had happened, and the timing also matters because there was mm-hmm. in, inventories of oil are already very low because of the demand supply dynamics in the energy the oil market. So you have a no inventory, then you get an event like this, it amplifies the price effects. My guess is about $10 a barrel. We'd be closer to 80 maybe if we had mm-hmm. not seen this. And translate that, Ryan, it, does that sound right about right to you? And trans, can you translate that into, you know, what it means for gasoline prices and what it means for, you know, how much Americans are paying at the gas pump? I mean, I know you, I've got some heuristics in my mind. Do you have you, heuristics, rules of thumb that can help mm-hmm. you with that? answer that question or you want me to take a crack at that or do you have a view on that have you thought about yeah, it? i mean the, the thing that i pay really close attention to is wholesale gasoline prices they lead prices that you and i pay at the pump by two weeks and they point towards you know uh, higher gasoline prices over the next uh you know couple of weeks so i don't have i mean do you have a what's your rule of thumb well for every 10 bucks it's about 30 cents a gallon of gasoline sustained it sounds about right yeah and then thirty every penny is about I'm mm-hmm. rounding, you know, one point five billion in additional consumer spending over a year. So you do the arithmetic reduction, you know. reduction. 
Oh yeah, reduction yep. in mm -hmm. consumer spend. So that gets you to no more than fifty billion. Fifty billion is, you know, twenty point two percent, point two point two five percentage points of GDP, a quarter point of GDP. How, how about that? For <laughs> that was good. I'll, I'll, I'll throw some home. stuff on top of that. Yeah. So the impact might be muted by the two point six trillion dollars that we have in excess savings. True. Which is that additional savings that you know occurred. You know, if we had kept pre-pandemic saving trends. And then also oil could be a net positive for other parts of the economy. So you're going to see mining in yeah. or investment in mining shafts and wells, which is about 10% of non-residential structures investment. That's going to pop. So you could see, you know, that part offset the drag from consumer spending. So the bottom line here is that, uh, that, uh, under the scenario where Russia invades and, uh, in, and stops, in the eastern provinces that this is no big deal in the grand scheme of things i mean it's not helpful obviously inflation is already high we're just adding to it but mm -hmm. it's not like a game-changing event in any respect no i think one thing that you chris and i would probably have to sit down if there if this thing does escalate we get a supply shock for oil typically the fed eases into supply shocks this time around they won't they so yeah, that could magnify point. the impact on financial market conditions and then spill over into the economy so John, you had asked earlier, Mark, about um, whether or not yeah. financial whether or not financial markets had baked in sort of this risk premium, and I can tell you that um, consumers definitely are baking it in already. So we're starting to see pretty dramatic changes from um, November through January, with a growing share of Germans, Italians saying that they um, expect prices to continue to rise, that they think that they're going to have a hard time meeting their energy uh, and utility bills. And as it so happens, those are also the countries that are more dependent on Russian gas than, let's say, France, which has you know, gone a different direction and maintained a lot of this nuclear energy. So I think you know, one of the things is it just exposes how volatile the, the energy situation is in Europe, um, even prior to this escalation. Oh, that's interesting. So in your surveys across the world, you're seeing right. in those places that are more dependent on Russian oil gas, that people know this and that they are more, their, their expectation is that I'm going to be paying a lot more than compared to a place like the United States, or you mentioned France, where right. they're not quite as reliant. Oh, interesting. Right. Yeah. Even like, I mean, you could use that as a simple um, test, you know, compare Germany and, and France as some sort of yeah, a, okay. a shock <laughs> and see how two different uh, countries respond differently to the shock. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, you know, Germany, something yeah. that we should do, hmm. we should look at the share of consumer spending that goes towards natural gas, gasoline in European countries versus, you know, in the US, because in the US, it's about 1%. We spend 1% of our spendings on gasoline, roughly the same for uh, natural gas. So it's really, really low. Oh, is that right? I thought it was mm -hmm. a bigger share of the pie than that. It's, no? it's dropped a lot. You know, since 2008, when we had the last, you know, big jump in oil prices, the share of consumer spending going towards gasoline has dropped you know, quite significantly. I think, Ryan, I think it's, it's, it's got to be more than that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's got to be three, four percent. No, because no, no. energy... Yeah, yeah CPI total share. energy CPI is six seven per. Okay, this yeah. is where we bet. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna pull it up right now. Yeah, CPI right. it's six seven percent oh. of CPI total oh. energy though. Yeah, but that includes a lot, bunch of other things. Lot I'm talking about just gasoline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair, yeah, fair, fair. Gasoline is a share of nominal spending. Yeah. All right, you can All right. discuss. I will look. Okay, this we'll up. discuss. Okay. <laughs> All right. Hey, John, you, I know you also morning consult did a survey of. Uh, attitudes towards Russia yeah. that yep. uh, for, in different parts of the world, U.S. Yep. and different parts of the world. Can you give us a sense of what that told you or is telling us? 
Yeah, certainly. So my colleague, Jason McMahon, who runs our geopolitical risk um, team, has been sort of leading the charge on this front, looking not only at how people view Russia, but what, and, you know, also how Americans are thinking about um, military intervention, what share of Americans want to go in, under what conditions would they be more willing to go in. I think um, what's surprising to me is like, you know, we live in this hyper polarized world right now where seemingly Democrats and Republicans can't agree on anything. And yet in this particular case, they all agree they don't want to go in. <laughs> they would much rather prefer sanctions um, to any sort of real direct military intervention. And I think the only scenario where that changes is where um, Russia not only, uh, you know, takes control of the eastern provinces, but actually invades all of Ukraine. And then Americans start saying, yeah, actually, we should go in. Okay, so that's the line for for most Americans. If they invade right. the, if they're in Kiev, Kiev. If, if they occupy all of Ukraine, then it warrants troop, uh, troop and yeah, U.S. troop oh. intervention. Okay, well, that's a pretty that's a pretty high bar. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. If I recall correctly, more Democrats. That's right. Uh, yeah, leaned in that direction than Republicans, which I found interesting. Right. It's not yeah. typically the, what we would the, think. The other thing I took away from the survey was. You did. You did also ask Russians what they thought of all right. this, and the Russians were pretty supportive. I thought, weren't they, of the whole thing? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the challenges of, um, or not with the challenges, the insights that you get from doing surveys here is that you don't really know how people in Russia, China, India, Turkey, some of these countries that are a little bit more closed to outside media influences feel about um, feel about the world, and so I think. We continue to see that, yeah, that uh, Russians are generally supportive of Putin. They're, I think they're less aware of the um, how close we are to uh, uh, a real pending military invasion than I think uh, folks in the U.S. are. And that might be clouding their view of supporting the uh, current path that Putin's taking. Yeah, it made me thought, think that this is another reason why Putin might invade, because politically, internally, it's playing pretty well. So right. he doesn't have like the population saying, I don't like this idea. They're saying, oh, okay, I'm okay with this. Idea. Right. At least, well, he's got at a, least right now. He's got a strong track record for what it's worth. I mean, I think the Crimea um, invasion yeah. built a lot of credibility. He showed that there's a way of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. The other thing that I found, and I'm just, you may not have any idea <laughs> of, of what, why I just, it just came out. I found it bizarre the folks in India, the population of India is very pro-Russian. I, at least in the context of this survey, did you see, did you notice that? Or did you, does that, any insight there? I'm not that you should, I just, I just found that very surprising. You see, I pour over your yeah, data. Yeah. You can tell. <laughs> I'm, right. I'm all in your data. I'm, I'm down in the I appreciate DNA. it. We yeah. love, we love power use of, of our data yeah. and there are a lot of insights in there. I think, um, you know, what, What's shocking to me is that um, it's not it's not the case, you know, that everyone uh, blindly assumes that the U.S. And the, and the policy approach that the U.S. is going to take is the right one. And I think doing these global surveys really reveals to you how how much, uh, uh, you know, the U.S. doesn't. There are people out there that really don't trust U.S. and U.S. policy yeah. intervention. Yeah. Hey, Ryan, are you going to tell us I told you so or what? I got the numbers. So okay. this time last year, it was a little bit less than one and a half percent, but now it's up to 2% for gasoline as oh, a share okay. of total consumption. Okay. I think you're more right than I was. I thought it was three. No, no, we're, this, it, is, this is total gasoline consumption? Uh, yeah, as a share of nominal consumer spending. Hmm. Okay. 
right. And then electricity is one and a half percent. And this is for the US and natural yeah. gas is a half a percent. Okay. So, so that oh, gasoline it adds share, up to three or four percent. Yeah, okay. you add it up. Right. Yeah. Oh, but if you look at yeah. just gasoline, that share was three and a half, four percent, 2012, 2013. So we've come down quite a bit. Good. No, that's, that's an interesting point. So you're saying, yeah, this isn't great for consumers, but it's not as bad as it used to be. And it on top used of to be, that, right. we produce a lot of oil and natural mm -hmm. gas. So those folks obviously benefit from the higher prices. So the net of all that Correct. is, you know, this may not be as big a hit than, that we're, than some fear, you know, Correct. At, least, at least through that link between what's going on. There's many others, financial markets, stock, you can see what's happened in the stock market. Right. You know, it's, just, it's down 10%. I don't think that's all Russia, Ukraine, but, you know, say if it's, say if it's only 5%, you know, you do the arithmetic there. That's, you know, what is that? That's probably 5% of 50 trillion. That's, you know, that's uh, 1.25. John, see how good I am at yeah, this? 1.25 <laughs> trillion down in household wealth, you know, because of the mm -hmm. stock market. Probably. But what I was going to say is, you know, while uh, gas is a share of total expenditures is not what it used to be, you know, there's there's never a good time for a military in intervention, but this is probably one of the worst times, you know, where right. households are already yeah. facing so many of these price pressures mm -hmm. that this is just, Great point. you know, exacerbating a lot of those underlying concerns. And actually ga gasoline prices, no worse thing to jack the price up and right. really undermine consumer sentiment, which I will come back to, but, yep. you know, really, and also inflation expectations, I would assume, Correct. right? Because people really form their expectations based on what they see at the at the pump. You know, they're paying more at the pump than they immediately think inflation is going to be higher. That's why UMich University of Michigan consumer confidence has gotten crushed recently. It's because the stock market, which it's very sensitive to, is down a lot, and gasoline prices are up. That's like the worst recipe for UMich. Well, maybe this is a good time to just take a, a dive there, John. Is your survey? Yeah. Saying the same thing, then we're saying largely the same thing. I think one of the the interesting footnotes from the University of Michigan survey was that that decrease that they experienced most recently was entirely driven by people making over a hundred thousand dollars per year, and so I think um, you know inflation, stock prices certainly drive consumers, but they do tend to drive more well-off consumers than the average person. You know, you think about people who make over $100,000 a year or more, it's about 30% of the U.S. population. So I I think it, you know, it sort of overstates uh, the case, but certainly what we're seeing is over the last five or six months that if you were to go try to run a, a regression, which we're doing and explain the drivers of daily consumer confidence, that things like gas prices, tips, uh, you know, inflation expectations, the market's inflation expectations, the stock prices matter more now than they have over the past, you know, since the start of the pandemic. And that those things like COVID cases have essentially left consumers uh, calculation. Yeah, I can attest to that. I was in Atlanta, I took a, a trip for the first time in, well, since Omicron hit, it was in Atlanta and I didn't see a mask. I mean, there was masks in the airport and on the plane, right. but outside of that, I didn't see a mask. I didn't see one mask. Yeah, yeah we saw really strong you know, negative correlations for the first two years, basically, where every time cases rose, mm -hmm. confidence fell dramatically. I and mean, it was like clockwork. And then slowly but surely over time, um, it took more and more cases to get a same level of decrease. You know, there's a diminishing yeah. impact of cases essentially on consumer confidence. And it was always asymmetric. So falling cases never drove confidence higher. It just allowed consumers to go focus on other 
things, you know, the employment situation, inflation, personal finance, and stuff like that. And so for me, it's great that COVID cases are behind are in the past, but now we got to go focus on the actual underlying economy. And it's, it's not clear to me that, that that's so positive that you're going to see some bounce back in consumer sentiment uh, this year. On the UMICH survey, it's currently at its lowest level since the pandemic. You have to go all the way back to the early recovery after the financial crisis to find sentiment by that measure as low as it is today. Is that the same with the morning consult? It's not It's not the same. We're not as far down as we were um, at the at the depths of um, COVID. And again, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that um, a lot of people, and we saw this in the January jobs report, you know, for a lot of people, they're getting, they're, they're working and, um, and wage gains have done a reasonably good job of keeping up with inflation. So if you're talking to, you know, people on the phone who tend to be a little bit older, tend to be a little bit wealthier, um, all of those inflation concerns are going to matter a lot more for them. Yeah. Well, since we're on the subject, um, you know, the one thing that I have found a bit perplexing and, and maybe you can make sure I got the the uh, the uh, facts right here uh, is yeah. that despite the uh, weaker sentiment, pick your measure, more morning consult, you miss consumers, yeah. words, all, all weaker, doesn't seem to affect the consumer spending. Consumers like Christmas, you know, we saw the retail sales for January come out. And by the way, we'll get to the game and just statistics game in just a second. But the uh, they were boom, boom, like, and consumer spending year over year. I mean, retail sales year over year, are like double digit. Some of that's price inflation, but that's even right. abstracting from that, that's pretty heady growth. So how do you square that circle, John, between the soft sentiment and the strong spending? You know, is that, it, I've never seen a disconnect like that yeah. before. But I think part of it is, um, you know, the, the, the premise. So I'll start you by fighting, fighting the premise and then I'll fight the conclusion. So yeah, the premise sure. is that consumer <laughs> yeah. sentiment is, um, you know, at, at record lows. I would say that's true, but the level is down. And actually what we have seen over the course of January and through February is that the change has not been so dramatic. In fact, it's been relatively constant. So I think that's one thing where I just push back that, you know, I don't, I don't think we're in a, a tailspin where every day is worse than the mm. day before. Yeah. Um, and then the other side is just on the um, it's on the jobs growth. <laughs> I mean, I think that we, we, we really are seeing a lot of, in particular, what we're seeing is a lot of lower income people looking for work, starting to work. I think that that's fueling um, a little bit more money in people's pockets. And some of that, like I said, or you said earlier, is, um, is driven by inflation, right? Those are, those are nominal values. Got it. Okay. Okay. But it sounds like... Uh that uh, you think the the consumer sentiment numbers will start to improve, become more consistent with the uh, consumer spending numbers here going forward. That there, we've, this gap has widened out for a range of reasons, but that, that gap yeah. will close going forward. Okay. Yeah, I would expect, I mean, what we see is that in general, uh, consumer sentiment tends to be highly responsive to downside risk, and then it takes a long time to recover. And so my sort of baseline is that we're going to need another six months of pretty steady uh, uh, economic improvements. And then I would say also on the policy front, you know, we need, you know, the, the, the Ukraine Russia stuff is not doing us any favors. Any of that sort of uncertainty is what makes it harder and harder for consumers to upgrade their assessment of the economy. Great. 
Um, I did want to ask one kind of methodological question, and I promise we're going to get to the game soon, guys. I know uh, Ryan's uh, the suspense is killing me. Yeah, suspense <laughs> killing him because I've got a great statistic. Uh, but the surveys you run, they're online, correct? They're online surveys. Entirely online. Okay, that's correct. And the other surveys, I think they're moving obviously more to online, but it can be a mix online phones. I don't think there's anyone doing paper anymore. Is there or actual phone calls? So the conference board for a while was doing mail-in surveys and mail then they, cha they, they changed in March That's to, right. to doing online surveys. And I know that um, Richard Curtin at the University of Michigan has a few proposals out there where he, they're, they're thinking about moving online, but I think you know, maintaining the continuity of that time series. They're trying to figure out a way to do that while maintaining the continuity of the time series. Oh, so they're still call. They're still using phone calls. They're still calling people, right? So oh, you've got to think yeah. about a lot of, you know, response rates. I mean, that was basically the, the premise of, of Morning Consult was the future of survey reaches is going to be driven by addressing this really significant problem mm -hmm. with decreasing response rates. If you go look at 25 to 34 year old women, they do not pick up the phone from random numbers. And so you've got to find a way to deal with that. And I think, um, one way is to talk to 6,000 people every day. Well, either do 60 year old white men either. They don't pick up the phone. That's either. right. Yeah. So there's, there, there, there's certain populations that are, yeah. um, that disproportionately don't answer unknown, unknown numbers. So is there any, they might not go online either, right? What's, what's that? They might not go online. They might not go online. I think one of the, one of the premises, particularly in the U S is that the online population will be, is growing. Online penetration is pretty high and growing. And then as we think about the developing economies, the similar sort of thing is going on there, particularly as people are on their phones more and more. Do you so think Johnny, of any bias? Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. sorry. Exact same question I was going to ask. <laughs> Coming back to the Russia, uh, yeah. the Russian opinion poll statistics, especially, right? How much confidence do you have in, in that number, for example, Russians saying that, yeah, they support the, uh, the efforts, but it's all online and we know there are cyber attacks and people watching, <laughs> right? I mean, so if I were in Russia, it would be very hard for me to say that I didn't support uh, something that Putin was doing. And I think that's probably true online or over the phone. And the same is true in Turkey or China or some of these other more authoritarian regimes. Um, I, um, you know, in the case of the U.S., where we were fortunate enough to live in a fairly free uh, liberal democracy, what we tend to see is that people, particularly in things that are really sensitive, so things like somebody's personal finances or the health of their marriage, or even their voting history, um, they tend to be a little bit more willing to tell the, the computer what they're thinking or what they're planning on doing um, as opposed to online, uh, uh, sorry, as opposed to you know, phone surveys. So, so you don't think there's any systematic bias? There's biases in every survey. There's biases in it. every economic measurement. I'd take a step yeah. back. Every economic measurement yeah. has, has air. Sure, sure. And, and, but you're saying, you know, the biases here are no, no worse than and probably better than the kind of the traditional way of calling people or taking mail, mail and survey results. That's right. And it's just yeah. the frequency, the frequency and timeliness frequency of it too. And timeliness. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's intuitive to me. Okay. Let's play the game. Okay. Can I go first? Yes, of course. <laughs> yes. So here's the game, John. So the game is we each uh, uh, lay out a statistic and the rest of the group tries to figure out uh, what it is through deductive reasoning uh, for the non for the uh, non guests that's us uh, the uh, the statistic has to be from the this 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 past week so anything that happened this past week oh, okay. and the best statistic is one that's not 
so easy that it's a slam dunk, but not so hard that there's no possibility that the person will get it. But you, John, free reign. You can do whatever you want. You're a guest. Uh, the bar is... I will tell you this. My, the statistic that I had is not from the most recent week, but it is the most recently published okay, that works. statistic in yeah. this series. That's good. Yeah, that works. Mm -hmm. That works. Hey, why don't we go with you first then? That sounds pretty intriguing. All right. Yeah, let's so, do that. So uh, here's the number. And I, okay. you know, this is no reference. I'm, I'm fresh to all of this. It's going to be, it's 1,691,000. And I'll say U.S. adults. All right, so it's from the employment numbers. How, what's, right. What are the rules for confirming uh, people's guesses? Is you this say like yes. A, yes, 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 correct. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Just, so it's in the employment report? Right. Oh, 1,691,000. Is it a change? It's not a change. It's a okay, level. So it's a level? All right. Uh something to do with it's in the household statistics not in the it's, it's in the household service correct the household survey is a survey of households is the basis for the unemployment rate and labor force as opposed to the payroll survey the survey of businesses okay that makes sense uh so Has, does that have anything to do with long-term versus short-term employment unemployment it it does yeah. I, gotta, I gotta figure out which one it is yeah that's the number the number of, of long-term it is. Wow. I am really, really impressed. That was uh, more rapid than I could have guessed. Very good. So when you say long-term, that's the number of people that have been unemployed for more than- 27 weeks or longer. 27 weeks. And, and I think, yeah. Is that down? Oh, that's got to be down. It's, it's down. And I mean, the reason I picked it, it was just, I thought, you know, going back to March, February, March of 2020, I was going to anticipating some sort of prolonged period of um, long-term unemployment. And we have seen this just snap back in a way that is so different than what we saw in 2008 and 2009, where you had mm -hmm. such persistently elevated levels of unemployment. I think part of that is on the labor force front, right? So that number sort of skews things because people just dropped out and stopped looking for work. But nonetheless, um, I think it's a sign of just taking a step back and remembering how robust this jobs recovery has been relative to some of the others. Yeah, good point. Here we are two years after the pandemic hit and the labor market's come not all the way back. Not all the way back. It's getting there. I mean, uh, and that's a good Do you know what it was roughly before the pandemic, the number of long-term unemployed? I think it was closer to like, I want to say one, three, one, four, something okay, like that. Okay, so we're So we're, we're ballpark. Yeah, we're closing in. We're mm -hmm. closing in. And that's, that's not accounting for population growth too. So there's something there. Yeah, true. Yeah, good point. Yeah. I mean, I think if you add up, you know, we're still at a 4% unemployment rate. We were three and a half before the pandemic. And you consider all the folks that have stepped out of the workforce, even accounting for retirees that, you know, let's assume they don't come back. And then you consider the growth in the working age or the population, working age mm -hmm. population since the pandemic hit. We're still down probably, I think, four or five million uh, jobs. So, but if you, if you do the arithmetic, we're creating 500,000 jobs per month. If we stay there for very long, certainly by the end of the year, we're there. You know, we're at full employment. Mm -hmm. So it feels like we're getting there pretty fast. Okay, that was a good one. Okay, good one. I, yep. I got mine. You ready? Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Ready? Yep. 760,000 and 760,000. This is, a, this is a, an amazing quinky dink in uh, the data this week. So it came out this week. It did indeed. Is it housing related? It is indeed. Permits. Okay, so you're stealing from Chris. <laughs> well, that's why uh, I wanted well. to go first. If I because if I let him go, I might not be yeah. able to use this statistic. 
Yeah. So is what housing? Well, we've got starts and existing home sales. Okay, which is it? So I'm thinking starts. Starts. Yeah. Very All good. Right. Yeah. Seven hundred sixty thousand. Yeah. Multifamily really... starts. No. No, no, no that's uh, that was actually a little weak. I think yeah. it was 450,000, something like that, annualized. Week, like how deep are you going? Are we going down into like permits? We're going pretty started? deep. We're going pretty deep, but not deep enough that you should not be able we to. Should know this. You should know regional this. Uh, regional split. Okay, like add the two together, and you get one point five four million. Maybe mm -hmm. that start ringing a bell. A, a bell. One point five four million. I think it's 1.54 million. Does that add well, up? starts are like 1.65. Yeah. 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 It's not starts. All right. Permits? Perm no, that was no, higher. No, no, no. no, no. Right. We got to go deeper. Completions? Completions. Completions. Okay. Oh, you guys. Yeah, this is pathetic. Uh, under construction. Under, <laughs> under construction. <laughs> under construction. We're going to get there. There's there only so many things. There we go. Under construction. <laughs> That's yeah. right. So this 1.54 million homes are under construction. 760,000 of which are single family, 760,000 of which are multifamily. That's the oh, that's first a good time. One. It's unbelievable. Wow. It's unbe uncanny. Oh, wow. It's uncanny. Mm -hmm. And neither the, the, the old time record high 50 years ago, <clears throat> briefly in the early yeah. 70s, yet you, you find a time when there were so many homes under construction. And I, I may have this wrong. Someone in the listener uh, world will tell, correct me if I'm wrong. But I don't think that actually includes all the uh, homes that <clears throat> have been permitted, but permitted, but not have actually begun construction. So correct. That's correct. That's yeah. a it, it so happens I was speaking with the chief economist of the Mortgage Bankers Association today, and that was the what? big, what the the big divide there. Are you talking to um, Frat <laughs> right. and Tony? Yeah. 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 Mike, yeah. yeah. And that's the big, I mean, it's a record high. What's You're not trying to big? hire him, are you, John? No, trying no, to hire no, no. Mike just, and Tony from NBA? Just trying to learn. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Trying to learn Jeez and understand Louise. what's going on. You, you and, can't keep uh, growing, hands growing fast. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a big right. issue. Housing is a big issue. There's a there's a lot of homes out there and people just flat out aren't starting them because they know that they don't have all the um they don't have all the supplies they need. Yeah. <laughs> they don't have the lumber, they don't have the people, and it doesn't it doesn't pay for them to start. And so it's the a garage problem. door. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. There's lumber, yeah, it's just it's expensive. Crazy. Yeah. Really expensive. Yes. Yeah. Well, actually, I think the backlog's even more than that. I was talking to, I don't know if I mentioned this on the podcast, but I was talking to a multifamily developer, a pretty good sized developer in California. And he was telling me he's not even starting projects because he's fearful that he starts and then he can't get to the finish line on, you know, with the schedule because he can't get whatever it is, you know, a plumbing fixture or something. So he's mm -hmm. not even going to start projects until. You know, it's, he has a clear line of sight to the end of the project, so the backlog may be more. Uh, but I think that's an important statistic. I mean, I think you, you know, we obviously 1.54 million just for context. I think the underlying rate of single-family, multifamily starts is about 1.7 million. So that's almost a mil, That's almost one year's worth of supply sitting in the pipeline that will come. And I think you know, once the these these pipe the um, the supply chain issues start to iron themselves out. And I expect that to happen over the course of the year. We're going to see a lot of supply, you know, a lot of, and which we need, obviously. And that that should help the it should help with house prices, uh, and affordability. It should also help with rent growth, which is key to inflation, obviously mm -hmm. CPI inflation. Won't help for this year. Probably won't help for 2023. But by mid-decade, I think we're going to see a lot more housing. Chris, I just said a lot there, and you have strong mm -hmm. views, I think, yeah. on this issue. <laughs> you want to push back on any of what I just said? 
it's a good story. But by the way, that wasn't your statistic, right? I picked. It was the not my statistic. Okay. I know I, I stuck to the rules. Well, made oh, it survey wow. related. <laughs> oh, how is that no, no, survey no. related? Morning console. No, no, no. this has to be. Like, Ryan, does it have to be survey related? No, no, that's no. not to the, the big topic. Housing's still consumer. Thing. All right, you can right. make that link. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a survey of. of Permitting issuing oh, places. Fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. Exactly. Oh, and they changed some methodology there. That was uh, oh, did important. They? Yeah. Oh, you we should didn't know that. Take a look. Okay. All right. Uh, hey, did you see before Chris? Sorry, Chris. Uh, in the uh, housing starts data for December, yeah. the permits jumped in the Northeast. I saw it was because that. of Philadelphia. I know that. We yeah. have a huge. I was like, Philadelphia gets a big shout out. Okay, Chris. You're I, I think I think it's a good story. <laughs> a good story. Uh, oh, you uh, do. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, you know it all. It all fits. I just don't think we have the capacity to build that much. Yeah, I, I agree. Mean, uh, I don't think we can get up there. Oh, in the next year, as quickly mean. in the next year, two years, even. Okay. And then you have interest rates rising. I, I think that's going to take a bite out of some of this uh, activity as well. So I think it'll remain think, strong. Yeah. I think uh, building is going to remain strong for next five, ten years easily. Uh, just because of all the um, the tailwinds from the demographics, but I don't think the industry has that capacity. Who, who's going to build these homes? You know why I'm saying this, John? Because I think we have a bet. That, don't we have a bet? Is that right? We do have a bet. Do, What's the over bet? under? One point seven million average. I, I just looked this up. That's how I yeah. know. Is it one point seven million average over twenty one and twenty two, two thousand twenty one? Oh, and I need one point eight million uh, for that to work. Yeah. And what did you say? I took the under. Yeah, the under is a good one. Yeah, you took the under. Yeah, well, how rude. So, <laughs> all, right. all right, I hear you. Okay, we'll okay. Uh, who hasn't gone yet? Uh, Ryan, you're up. All right, these numbers are perfect, right? Because it ties in what we're talking about in the big topic, and then also everything else for the most part that we've talked about: supply chains, inflation. This is these are good. Mark, oh, so John, Mark's been on a hot run, so we gotta we gotta. You know, bring them back it, down to earth. We do have a cowbell. Have I, I was have, not if you get these that. right, I'll give you the double cowbell. We have two cowbells. Oh, oh, really? oh. Okay. All right. So the first one is positive 12.5%. Oh, so you're not going to give us the second one? Or are and the second one is minus 21.3 or 22.3. So the first, oh, the, are they, these are related, obviously. Different no. reports, but they oh. are tied together. One is causing the other. And one is causing the other. Okay. Mm -hmm. Is it inflation related? It's not. It's, from, related. it's not from the CPI? That's not retail the CPI. Sales? It came out this week. I'm sorry? Is it re retail oh, sales? Week, yeah. It's retail sales. Okay. I'll give you a hint. It's not uh, month to month. It's not year over year. It's, yes. it's a different way to looking at it, but it hammers on the point. It's not month over month. It's not year over year. It's not a change. And it's overall, it's all, total retail sales is not some component of retail sales. It's no, it's, you gotta, it's what goes into GDP. Oh, control retail sales. Okay, now what's the 12.5%? Oh, the control retail sales, by the way, is total retail sales, X auto, X gasoline, X building materials, because the building materials go into residential investment. So that, that control, they call control retail sales, drives consumer spending. And it takes out restaurants. And, oh yeah, it takes out restaurants. Yeah. So twelve point five percent. That's not year over year control retail sales. Mm -hmm. huh. No, think about when you go to the mall. You go to the map, and it says yeah. you are here. There's yeah. your head. Boy, and this does is that help you, Chris. You know, that, yeah. 
And what's the last all time right. you, oh, you guys are suffering? Anyway, uh, yeah, I haven't been in a mall in a long time. Yeah, we we wrote about this on the site. So it twelve and a half percent. That's the level of control retail sales above its pre-pandemic trend. So that's uh, it's enormous. It's a that's shift, how, and it's a permanent shift. No, I don't think it's permanent. No. I think it's going to come back because you know we're going to get services spending picking up over the next couple right. of years. So you'll see goods. There's only so much stuff we can buy. It, it will come back down. Well, the, but down that the that gap is twenty one percent. Is that on the that can't be on the service side, is it? No, it's not. Uh, but we're buying a lot of stuff. Is it in the retail sales numbers too? It's not. Oh, okay. Got to go but, different but, survey. But the twelve and a half. That's you're saying. Look, that, that that's the we, we've got because people are sheltering in place. They spend a lot of of their money on stuff, mm-hmm. but they spend a lot. Oh, is it like uh, spending on movie tickets? It's not spending, spending on related. Broadway plays. Spending on yeah, I think all the games. We got two regional manufacturing surveys. Oh, we this did week. Philly Fed. And, Philly Fed, very good. Yeah, and I don't know what the other one. Richmond Fed, maybe I'm not sure. Uh, Empire State, so the New York. Empire Fed. State. Oh, yeah. New York yeah, that's right. But it's in the Philly Fed. You're you're, you're getting close. Oh, down twenty one point five. I I don't know what what is it. It is the uh, expectations six months ahead of supply chain deliveries, or so su- supplier deliveries. So when oh, it's so- negative, it means. Oh. Purchasing manufacturers are expecting faster deliveries. This is oh, the great. lowest it's been yeah. since 2008. So That's even though we're buying a lot of stuff, statistic. you know, expectations are supply chain problems are going to start to ease. So tied in spending with supply chains, which means inflation is going to begin to decelerate. Hey, hey, Ryan, here's, I, this is something that's bothering me related. Mm-hmm. Inventory accumulation is booming because the other yes. one of the other statistics that came out this week was business inventory, manufacturing, yep. retail wholesale skyward. And I think the inventory to sales ratio, which is a kind of a good measure of your level of inventory, it's actually moving up and pretty, pretty high. Yeah. So what's going on? I mean, why are we having shortages or are we having shortages? I mean, I can't square the circle that people are saying, I can't get this stuff, but it's like, we got enormous inventory build, you know, going on. Well, the inventory bill, like the IS ratios are going up for wholesalers and retailers. It's pretty flat for manufacturers. So it's okay. It differs. Yeah. Okay. But are you saying the shortages are in manufacturing? They're not in which stuff? Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Like vehicles, you you got a shortage, but that's in manufacturing. Okay. That's 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 a manufacturing. Building materials. But it feels like all the data is accumulating, suggesting strongly, and this is because of your supply chain stress index, which is a compilation mm-hmm. of a lot of these statistics, that things are starting to move in the right direction around the supply chains. They are. And I think it, it's, it's a good sign that businesses are increasing their inventories because that's going to take additional stress off the supply chain because they're not going to have to book as many orders you know, in a few months to replenish their, their shelves or their, their manufacturing plans. So. Hey, John. So I, yeah, I can speak yeah, to that directly. Yeah, yeah, on on right. the US side, I mean, that's exactly what we're seeing across all the major categ- spending categories that you know, when consumers go to make these purchases, um, it's not that they, they've actually, you know, the supply, ch- the, the prevalence of supply chain issues has um, fallen, but rather that the growth rate is essentially gone to zero. So we've sort of, it looks like we've kind of reached some, you know, peak supply chain disruption, essentially. And that's, you know, groceries, new and used cars, um, um, uh, clothing and apparel, the only area, and this is maybe, you know, I guess if we're U.S. focused here, then we can scrap this, Ben. But the only area where we're seeing dramatic supply chain issues is in Australia of all places. I don't know if you guys have been following this, but no. 
they've got extreme labor shortages, a flood that wiped out a lot of their transportation and the grocery shelves are just essentially bare there. And so we saw a 26 percentage point increase in the share of Australians who said in January that they um, couldn't go buy the food that they were looking for in, in grocery stores. I had not heard that. That's no. fascinating. So, so in the surveys you've been doing, you ask consumers about what shortages they're facing. That's right. And, so if they, and, yeah. So and what you're finding is that people are increasingly not experiencing shortages. Is that what, what you're saying? Well, I wouldn't go that far quite yet. I would say just okay. that the, the growth rate has essentially slowed. So we saw, you know, September to October, things got worse. October, to November, things were worse. And then all of a sudden, like December to January, we've seen it essentially hold constant, particularly um, for some of these goods that early on in the pandemic were like, uh, you know, driving a lot of the supply chain shortage. I think about used cars. And I, I, you know, it's unclear to me if that's because there are more used cars or if there's just fewer people, you know, consumers have essentially internalized that there's such a, um, you know, supply constraint that they're not going out and trying to make those purchases. Oh, I see. And so your, your sense is, you, of course, we'll have to see what happens here, but your sense is that this might be an inflection point. That's right. Okay. That's right. And that your survey should start to show fewer and fewer people reporting. I'm experiencing shortages for whatever it is. Going As forward. a share of total people looking to make that purchase. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you and go can, look at, yeah. Sorry, can you give me a sense of magnitude? So like what percent of your survey saying I I'm suffering, you know, some, some sort some form of shortage. So I think like on the, um, you know, on the high end, we're seeing like grocery sales, grocery and food items, which yeah. uh, in January was really high. 47% of adults who tried to go buy groceries said they encountered that the item wasn't stocked. And that's up from 41% in November. Um, but then if you go down to something like, uh, you know, newer used cars, it's like 28%. And that's essentially flat over the past six months. Well, you know, my wife every time she comes back from the grocery store, she complains bitterly she can't find onion salt. Do you have any what? idea what onion salt is? I, I, I have no idea. What, what do you use onion salt? It feels right? antiquated. I mean, one of the things that's interesting is we're, we're tr tracking not only whether or not there's a supply chain disruption, but also how are people responding to it. And mm -hmm. we do see overwhelmingly that um, women are less likely to be willing to pay more for something that's, you know, where they've, they've, they're experiencing elevated prices than men. And the same is true with urban people. Urban adults are willing to go out there and, and pay the extra money to get the thing. And that's now, not true for that suburban urban adults. What do you, what do you, how do you, what do you, what's the intuition behind that? Do you think is you have an intuition about men, women, and their different. I think attitudes? part of it has to come down to um, what they're, what they're out to purchase. Okay. And um, you know, I think we, we see, um, a lot of the, um, you know, the, the women still disproportionately go go do a lot of the large grocery shopping. Yeah. And so if well, they, yeah, yeah. so go ahead. It may be that at least um, now it's, it's all about me, John, as you know. So from my experience, I don't buy many things. So if I want to buy something, that's like a deal. Like I'm, yeah, I right. don't care. Just give it to me right. as fast as you possibly can. I don't care if it's double the price. My wife's buying lots of stuff all the time, so that maybe maybe that's what that's right. partly what's is, going. Is on. that by choice or decision? Because you go out and when you buy stuff, you buy two of everything. So why do you have two power washers? Like that, your spending oh, should be re revoked <laughs> right there. Yeah, that I you know I, I, I have a hard time explaining that that mm -hmm. there's something going on there deep down you psychologically. Have 
You have two yeah. of everything? You have duplicates of everything in your no, house? No, he's making that no. up. Yeah. Oh, okay. But I do no, have, you have two, two power, power washers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't, There's some and sort I, of inner fear there. That you, you, yeah, and I really don't know why. Yeah. Yeah. I really mm-hmm. don't know why. But, but I think Brian joked, or my, somebody joked that I, I bought one to wash the other. The other, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, while we're on sort of on this subject, uh, you, is, is, I think you've also done a fair amount of work on inflation expectations. That's right. Trying to yeah. Make, can Can you describe? Because I think you're doing a, you're working on a special measure, or a that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So for the last year and a half, um, we've been partnering with researchers from the Cleveland Federal Reserve to try to think about a new way of measuring inflation expectations, and so um, really trying to understand basically how people think about inflation. So what we're doing is we're going out there and asking people how much um, their income would have to increase or decrease to make up for changes in uh, prices of goods and services that they see. And so we're in the US, it's 20,000 people every week. So it's just, again, high frequency inflation expectations, looking at the 12 month um, time horizon. We see a really dramatic increase, but it looks to me like we've sort of plateaued starting in December and January. Again, there was some sort of inflection point that the rate of growth is slowed. But globally, um, you know, we continue to see inflation expectations increase pretty dramatically in places like Turkey. I mean, <laughs> the places where you would expect it to happen, places like Turkey, um, Russia, and uh, Argentina, they were all sort of month over month, ex- they uh, showed really large increases in inflation expectations. You know, we have we have this. Uh, there's this debate been raging about, uh, or at least it's a, a raging in my own mind, about the source of inflation, whether it's demand or supply. And of course, it's both demand and supply. It's both, right? Yeah, no one's arguing that. But you know, predominantly, this uncomfortably high inflation we're suffering through right now, whether that's supply driven. We talked about global supply chains and labor markets. You know, uh, as opposed to demand driven. You know, which I I would argue. This time last year, when we got vac- the vaccines and people started spending, and we had the American Rescue Plan, and that helped people spend, that that was more about demand. But now it feels more like supply. In any of your survey, or in your survey survey work, or any of your own thoughts around that debate, I'm really curious what you think about that. If you have some views on that, you know, I think on the demand front, we continue to see that spending is sort of over allocated towards goods relative to services that I think a lot of us had expected by now that we would start seeing more and more people move away from these large sort of durable goods purchases and into the services sector. And that just flat out hasn't happened. And so it's not super surprising me that there's a concentrated amount of money um, chasing these relatively few goods. And it just so happens that they (laughs) tend to be the ones that are also affected by these supply chain issues. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I I, I would expect, I mean, what we're starting to see is that consumers are growing more and more comfortable going out to, to, uh, you know, in-person activities. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, in in DC here, they're um, removing the mask mandate. They're removing the vaccination mandate. Um, I think the same is true in New York and some of the other large metro areas. So I'm expecting this summer to start seeing like a real boom in the services sector. And I think that's going to ease some of the supply uh, price, price pressures. Yeah. Price pressures. Yeah. Travel bookings are up, right? Mm-hmm. Or there you see it. Yeah. yeah. It makes sense. Let me throw in my statistic here. Oh this yeah. Well, I'm sorry, Chris. I nearly no, forgot. No, yeah, no sorry. problem. Still this, will be a, this is going to be a see, he overhanded really wanted softball. To play. He wouldn't even, you know, yeah. <laughs> wait, go ahead. 3.5%. 3. 3.5%. 3. Is it housing? Nope. It's not housing. Not housing. 3.5%. In a statistic that came out this week, yeah, retail this in the retail week. sales numbers. Nope. 
No. Industrial production? No, it is a survey. Oh, a survey. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's a survey. Uh, Very relevant to what John oh, just said. Yeah, he's laughing. Ha ha. ha. You, I, I did the right statistics. Is this the New York Fed <laughs> inflation expectations? Oh, you yeah. The, yeah, you the three-year ahead. That's right. Three-year ahead, three and a half. It fell by half a oh, I saw percentage that. point. Fall, yeah. Which is so, a little weird. It feels like it's or, rolled over too. If you look at a graph of it, it feels seems like it's rolled like it. over. Which yeah, is a both the both the one year and the three year ahead. Yeah, rolled over. So, I mean, it's yeah. only one point, but yeah, they suggest that uh, consumers are switching behavior or they don't expect this inflation to persist. Particularly in the context of higher gasoline prices, which you would have thought just the opposite, right? Because it so feels near term consumer expectations around inflation feel so dominated by the movements in gas mm -hmm. prices at least yeah today. i mean i think it's gas and groceries though i do i think it's both oh, i mean groceries. we saw that in the cpi right the grocery prices are you know uh skyrocketing contributing to cpi as well yeah good point okay yeah, yeah. that's a, i found it inter yeah. interesting yeah that's yeah, a good no, one very interesting that is a good one yeah very good hey john um are there uh other uh uh sort of survey-based insights in uh, what's going on in the economy oh, man. you want to share? I'm just really curious. Yeah, so many. Put at the top of the list, yeah. So um, I would put at the top of the list our January measure of financial vulnerability. So we measure every month the share of adults who lack savings to cover their basic expenses for a full month. Hmm. And um, it kind of hovered around 22, 21, 22%. Every time there was some stimulus injection, it fell. And then all of a sudden in January, it skyrocketed up to 29%, highest level since we've been collecting it over the past two years. Um, and for me, it just sort of highlighted exactly what's at stake. While, while we're moving beyond COVID, we just don't have the policy support in place to provide some of those folks who are still losing their job um, with additional you know, uh, uh, financing. And when you pair that with elevated inflation, elevated costs, I think that there's a group of people out there that's really suffering and, and that number, you know, the total savings rate or savings to income ratio, I think doesn't really reflect the fact that there's a, a group of people out there who are not making a lot of money and they've, they're really starting to eat into whatever savings they might've had. And that statistic is the percent of respondents that say they don't have enough to pay for all their bills in that given month. Correct. Right. That, that feels like child tax credit, right? Cause that expired in January. And I, I, that, that was, that would not be surprising to me that you'd see five, six percent percentage points more of folks saying, I can't pay my bills as a result of that. Feels it very, yeah, it, it very well could be it. Yeah. You know, when, when, when we looked at the historically, there was a pretty big bump when the $600 um, federal unemployment insurance benefits expired mm -hmm. um, uh, last year. And then this year we had the $300 benefit expire in September and we didn't really see a move in the number. There was, it was just kind of plodding along at 22%. And then all of a sudden in January, it, it skyrocketed. I think in February, it's likely to come back down a little bit. Um, we, we haven't had, you know, the weekly unemployment insurance numbers have not been as high as they were in January. So I don't, I, I don't think that disrupt there are disruptions to the income like there were before. And then I think the other thing to note is maybe just um, we're, we're tracking the share of, um, part-time workers who want to work full-time. Mm -hmm. And um, that number continues to rise. It has risen every month since June. I think we're up now to um, something like 55 or 60%. So it's been a, you know, up from 30 or 35% in June. So there's a lot of these part-time workers 
want to work full time and they can't quite figure out how to do it. They've got childcare issues, healthcare. I mean, there are all these sort of binding constraints that are preventing them, but um, there's well, something not, to be said about there's something to be said about the the, the sort of um, you know intensive margin that there are people who are working a little bit. They'd like to be contributing more hours. Well, it doesn't sound like well. Do you know? Is this because there aren't full time jobs? It doesn't feel like that would be the case. If I don't think that's the case. No. No. Yeah, they just can't get their lives in a place where they can actually work full time. Correct. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Very. Uh, what else? Maybe maybe the last thing that's interesting is the global recovering confidence. So we're tracking. Mm -hmm the largest 15 global economies. And since um, July of this past year, 2021, that was sort of the peak of the GDP weighted recovery in uh, consumer confidence. And every month since then, we've seen a gradual decline. So this idea that we're gonna kind of continue to bounce back in, in perpetuity, I think um, is behind us. And that's started with Delta and then moved to Omicron and then inflation. You know, we've just had this sort of litany of factors that have weighed on the global front, I think a lot more than we maybe appreciate here. And in, in the US, we had Delta and Omicron, and those were separate things. In Europe, that was basically one big thing. Big thing, yeah. Yeah. Hey, just one last uh, sort of broad question, because you joined Morning Console and started looking at the data prior to the pandemic. Do you get a, a sense generally that the pandemic is kind of weighing on the collective psyche? I mean, that people just inherently are just generally more pessimistic than they were pre-pandemic or can you can you tell that from your work i mean certainly there the the levels remain well below what they were in yeah. 2019 and 18 that people there's a, a smaller share of the population that believes that they'll be well better off financially a year from now than they are currently and so i think um i think that's a lot of it and then i think um what we continue to see is just how how differently people across this country have experienced the pandemic that, you know, we talk about the average American, but just think that under $50,000 in annual income group um, is not going to bounce back from this pandemic yeah. economically, I should say. Yeah. Hey, Ryan, Chris, any uh, questions for John? Yeah, just on that last note, I, one mm -hmm. thing I find interesting from the University of Michigan survey is the political divide, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, we have confidence way down, but it's, it's driven by the Republicans, right? There's a, a very uh, vast chasm uh, between the two. And I wonder how that figures into the, uh, into your thinking around the survey results. I, you know, we mentioned the, uh, the difference between the soft data, people saying yeah. they're not confident, but then going out and spending anyway. Is that, is that political divide something you think is getting more intense in the, in the survey results or any thoughts it, about that? There was a, so in general, there's a, there's a level difference. So you can, you, you can see that Democrats are in general more confident in the economy than Republicans. And that's even after controlling for things like income. Right. But if you do, you know, a rolling 30 day percent change or something like that, those trends are right on top of each other. And so what was really interesting is we started to see in that, in that trend uh, line, a divergence um, starting in August and September, you know, one could argue that that's driven by politics, but as it so happens, you know, uh, older, you know, a higher share of older Americans are Republican and a higher share of Republicans live in the middle of the country. And both of those groups are groups that have, were disproportionately affected by rising prices. And so I think, you know, it, it's hard for me to say, um, you know, conclusively that that's a political phenomenon and not uh 
driven by the reality of inflation affecting different groups of the, you know, different population cohorts differently. A good point. I guess what uh, gives me pause is if you go back historically, you look around elections, you know, it's uh, it, it flips. You know, whoever's it in the flips. White House, right. suddenly my uh, opinion has changed I'm, you know, the next day, right? Before any policies, before the, the person's actually in office, right? I'm feeling With, more confident. I mean, it's like clockwork. It's like as soon as the election happens, there's this total yeah. reversal. Again, it's one of the reasons why I just almost exclusively look at the some sort of change over time. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And it's not just consumers. If you look at the small business confidence survey and if I be like for sure. You know, small businesses are very pessimistic about the economy's prospects with a Democrat in office and then it flips if there's a Republican. So it's not just consumers. So one one question I or thought I had was around that financial vulnerability. Uh you know, we're in tax season and the average tax refund so far is $800 less than what was the average last year. And again, that's to Mark's point about the child tax credit. So maybe it comes back down in February, but so far refunds are averaging a lot less than what we've seen over the last few years. So that might keep it elevated for a period of time. What do you think is driving that? Is that just because incomes are down? I think it's the child, child, child tax, tax credit. Because people yeah. had, they, they you can't deduct all of it. They can't deduct all of it. Yeah. Yep. That makes that, that was It'll be interesting. You know, we we looked at it and what what it looked like to us when we we looked at people who received the child tax credit was that it tended to disproportionately go to higher income people because they have more kids. <laughs> I know that's a super counterintuitive group, but if you if it, thought process, but if you look at this like you know, 100 to 150,000 annual income group, those are the people who tend to be married and they tend to have more kids. And so they get a large, they, their check was larger than, than lower income people. It's not to say that the, a smaller dollar value could be more valuable for lower income people and helping them to pay their bills. But just in terms of the sheer dollar value, it looked to us like it was going towards uh, slightly higher income. Folks. Although the percent of children that have been lifted out of poverty is pretty impressive. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Were lifted out of poverty, I should say. Mm -hmm. But well, John, I want to thank you. This was very uh, thoughtful and insightful. Um, so, what's your mood like? How do you? How are you feeling? <laughs> thumbs up, thumbs down. Uh, yeah, I feel pretty good. You know, we spoke about this. I just went. I went into the office for the first time um, this week, and so I'm feeling pretty good that we're going to get back and live some sort of normal, new normal life. Yep, fantastic. And Chris is already back in. Uh, he needs some company, though. Ryan, are you going back in anytime soon? Going Friday. I'm going to see Chris on Friday. All right. Oh, okay. We might do is the this... podcast in the conference room oh, together. Huh? Live. Wow. Oh, we could do it live. Wow. Okay. Very good. Well, you're going to have to wait a little bit longer for me. Um, I'm still safely ensconced in Florida. So I'll be back soon, though. Uh, it's getting warmer nice, here. It's, yeah, 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 warming up. It's like 50s <laughs> yeah. today. I'm just yeah, saying it's like Mark's threshold is what? out here right now. Sunny and I, I won't All even right. show you. All right. <laughs> what's, your, what's your threshold, Mark? What's the temperature have to be to get you back up to Philly? Kind of sort of like 70. I mean, geez. Okay. Yeah. That, that, might, that might do it. So we'll see in uh, April or May. Yeah, April or May. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, uh, at Mark Zandy, just saying. John, what's your uh, Twitter at, handle? At John C. Lear. There you go. And Mr. Ryan? At real time underscore econ. And Chris, Chris, what's your, I know you have. I'm on name. LinkedIn. Come on, LinkedIn. Ping, ping, yeah, <laughs> he's, a, he's a LinkedIn maven. And any suggestions about future podcasts, you know, please let us know. You can go to economy.com and, and uh, vote and let us know what you want us to chat about. And uh, we will certainly do that. 
And with that, we'll call this a, a podcast. Take care, everyone. Mm-hmm.